0: And so I, and so, I would like for you to turn there, and i will uh, I will say a few words that introduce the psalm to us. <clears throat> our tears are no longer of water; they are of blood. They do not merely obscure our sight, they choke our very hearts." These words were part of a correspondence sent from a group of Christians known as the Waldensians to European Christians after they had suffered a severe persecution at the command of the Duke of Savoy on behalf of the Roman Church in April of 1655. The horrors of this persecution and the correspondence that the Waldensians sent to the European Christians provoked John Milton of Paradise Lost fame to write the following words in his sonnet 18, or also named on the late massacre in Piedmont. Avenge, O Lord, thy slaughtered saints whose bones lie scattered on the Alpine mountains cold. Even them who kept thy truth so pure of old, when all our fathers worshiped stocks and stones, forget not... In thy book record their groans, who were thy sheep, and in their ancient folds, slain by the bloody Piedmontese that rolled mother with infant down the rocks. Their moans, the veils redoubled to the hills, and they to heaven. Their martyred blood and ashes sow all over the Italian fields, where still doth sway the triple tyrant that from these may grow a hundredfold, who having learnt thy way, early may fly the Babylonian woe. Milton was a contemporary of this correspondence, he he wrote it in near immediate response to it. And the words of Milton, like the text today, give voice to God's people who had been crushed by their adversary. These Waldensians were faithful Christians, precursors to uh, the Protestant Reformation. And they were now crushed and severely persecuted and certainly wondering where God was in all of this. And So let's look at similar words in the 44th Psalm. O God, we have heard with our ears, our fathers have told us what deeds you performed in their days, in the days of old. You with your own hand drove out the nations, but them you planted. You afflicted the peoples, but them you set free. For not by their own sword did they win the land, nor did their own arms save them, but your right hand and your arm and the light of your face, for you delighted in them. But you have rejected us and disgraced us and have not gone out with our armies. You have made us turn back from the foe, and those who hate us have gotten spoil. You have made us like sheep for slaughter and have scattered us among the nations. You have sold your people for a trifle, demanding no high price for them. You have made us the taunt of your neighbors, the derision of our neighbors, rather, the derision and scorn of those around us. You have made us a byword among the nations, a laughingstock among the peoples. All day long my disgrace is before me and shame has covered my face. At the sound of the taunter and reviler, at the sight of the enemy and the avenger. All this has come upon us, though we have not forgotten you, and we have not been false to your covenant. Our heart is not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your ways. Yet you have broken us in the place of jackals and covered us with the shadow of death. If we had forgotten the name of our God or spread out our hands to a foreign God, would not God discover this? For he knows the secrets of the heart. Yet for your sake we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Awake! Why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust. Our belly clings to the ground. Rise up, come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. Gracious God, my deepest prayer this morning is that you would take the meager effort and that you would multiply it by your spirit. Let the seed sown find fertile soil in the hearts of your people today. And let it spring up and bring forth a harvest for the glory of your name. So like the Waldensians, here God's old covenant people feel like that they are suffering unjustly. They are receiving affliction And they feel like they've done nothing to deserve it. And so they cry out to God who is their only hope and salvation. Now this is 26 verses, it's a whole chapter, it's a a little more lengthy perhaps than we may typically take uh, to task. So to help us work through the psalm today, I want to take it in three sections like Us preachers often do for some weird reason. We like like to divide things by three. But verse 1 through 8 is that first section. And it shows that God delivers His people. Then 9 through 22, we see the plight and complaint of God's people. And then verse 23 through 26 ends it up with the petition of God's people. So working through that... After that, I want us to see how God's new covenant people, how we can interpret this passage before then considering some ways we can apply this truth to our lives. So let's then look at that first section, verses one through eight. God delivers his people. So the first movement of Psalm 44 reflects on God's deliverance of his people. First, the Psalm, the psalmist speaks of the past deliverance. Of God's people. And then the past deliverance of God's people informs their present trust in God's delivering power. So we see their past deliverance and their present trust in God's deliverance. In the opening verses of the psalm, the psalmist reflects on the past deliverance, particularly, as you can see here, the Exodus. And the conquest of Canaan, the exodus is implicit, but the conquest of Canaan is almost explicit. We can see what, uh, what he is talking about there. You drove out the nations, but you planted your people. You afflicted the, peop- the foreign peoples, but you set them free. So what is happening here is in obedience to Deuteronomy chapter 6, the fathers in God's covenant people had rehearsed the mighty acts of God to their children. And the rehearsal of that ancient ancient story served the great purpose in teaching successive generations that it was in fact God who had delivered them and not the strength of their own hands or the strength of the false gods of the surrounding nations. And we see that emphasis Plainly placed on God's work in this psalm, in the beginning here. Verse 1 says what deeds you performed. Verse 2, you with your own hands. So it was God who drove the foreign nations and afflicted the foreign people while freeing and planting His own people in the land. Verse 3 blatantly acknowledges it was by the sword or stre- It was rather not by the sword or strength of their fathers. That they were delivered and established. But it was by the strength of the arm of the Lord. Not by their own sword did they win. Did they? Nor did their own arm save them. But your right hand and your arm. So it was the strength of the arm of God. It was the skill of the hand of God. That they were delivered. But also... Note the end of verse 3 that says, "...and the light of your face, for you delighted in them." So the psalmist uses poetic imagery here, and borrowing really from the classic benediction of Numbers 6, 24, where the blessing is that the Lord's face would shine upon His people. As He favors them and blesses Him. So the people here are affirming that God, it is God who has delivered and established them, not because they were good folks, but because of His favor towards them and His steadfast love, God had determined to shine His face on this people. And because of that, God had delivered them and established them as a nation. And so this is the recounting of the past deliverances of God, But then they begin to describe their own present trust. So, God, you have delivered us in the past. And that has been handed down through the generations. That truth has been handed down through the generations. And so now we presently trust in God's delivering power. Verse 4 briefly breaks the first person plural voice in the psalm. And it's probably the king speaking on behalf of the people... And then affirming that God is still their king. And that salvation comes again from him. And so this is in the present. This, Lord, you are still our king. It's like the king is speaking on behalf of the people and still exclaiming, Lord, we know that you delivered us in the past and we still trust you. And we are still dependent on you to deliver your people now. The emphasis on God's delivering power just continues in the present tense. In verses 4 through 7. The king says, you are my king, O God. Verse 5 says, through you we push down your foes. Through your name we tread down those who rise up against us. Not in my bow do I trust, nor can my sword save me. But you have saved us. This is a present trust. Lord, you have done this in the past and it is you who still delivers us even now. And in verse 8, God shows that the people still reverently and joyfully boast in God who has delivered them and still delivers them and that they will continually give thanks to him, not just presently, but forever Because the people of God realize that it has always been God who had delivered them. And overcame their enemies. And it will always be God who delivers them. And overcomes their enemies. And so they place their trust in Him. And then verse 9 through 22. Reveal to us the plight. And the complaint. Of God's people. And we may even exchange that. Word complaint for lament. Because this is what this psalm is. This psalm, especially this section of the psalm, is a lament. It is a psalm of lament. But let's see their plight in verses 9 through 16. First, we see beginning in 9, that all-important conjunction that informs us so much when we study our Bibles, that word is but or yet. Or however. So God, you have delivered us in the past. We are trusting that you deliver us now. However, or yet, or but, you have rejected us. The current circumstances of God's people, what they were facing at that moment, did not match the past deliverances that God had, del- had uh, given them. Or it did not match the present trust that they were placing in God at that moment. Look at how the plight of God's people is described. The psalmist says, They are rejected, disgraced, spoiled by the enemy, scattered among the foreign nations. They are sold as cheap slaves and they are mocked by their enemy. Verse 15 and 16 We hear the singular voice again. And this singular voice shows that the people are not only defeated militarily, but they are also defeated morally. All day long, verse 15 says, my disgrace is before me. We are ashamed. And shame has covered my face. At the sound of the taunter and reviler, at the sight of the enemy and the avenger. We have been defeated militarily. You have, you have forsaken us. And now our, enemy, our enemies are taunting us and reviling us. So we are defeated militarily and morally. They feel ashamed, disgraced, and worst of all, they feel abandoned by God. And they can't understand why this has befallen them. Perhaps even... Asking the question that the Waldensians must have asked. Why have you allowed our enemies to triumph over us? I also think it's important before we move on. That we don't miss the constant acknowledgement still. The constant acknowledgement of the people. That both their deliverance and even their defeat. Are entirely dependent. On the Lord. Note the note the usage of you in reference to God in verses nine through fourteen. But you have rejected us. You have made us turn back from the foe. You have made us like sheep. You have sold sold your people. You have made us the taunt of our neighbors. You have made us a byword among the nations. They had not turned back from uh, God and trusted their own strength. But it was God. It is, not, it is you, Lord, who has done this to us. And that does sound accusatory. But bear in mind that this is a lament. And that is often the way laments are structured. Because this is not merely accusatory. But it is also an acknowledgement of how dependent upon the Lord they truly are. Even in defeat... Lord, we realize that if you had been with us, we would have won. It, it's you, Lord, that has always won the battle, and so if we're losing the battle, it's because you are not with us. Do you see how that is a, tr- a trust, even though it is a complaint against the Lord, a lament of their circumstances? They are still saying, "Lord, we are utterly in—we uh, are utterly, whether in defeat or in victory, dependent." Upon you, it is evidence—further evidence—that they are yet placing their trust in the Lord as their only hope to deliver them from their adversaries. And then, verse seventeen through twenty-two, I think we get to perhaps the the heart of the complaint uh, or or the lament of God's people. Note that that the complaint in uh, beginning there. Is not based on covenant, uh, is not based on the fact that they have been unfaithful to the covenant. They are appealing to the Almighty based on their covenant faithfulness and continued trust. They're saying, Lord, we have not been unfaithful to the covenant. We have been faithful to the covenant. We still trust you. We have not. Uh, we have not violated the covenant by turning to false gods for help. We have not gone to the idol gods of the foreign nations. We have not trusted in our own strength. We still recognize, Lord, that we can't deliver ourselves. They had not abandoned God, is what they are saying, but they feel abandoned by Him. And despite their... Covenant faithfulness despite that they had not turned to their own strength and turned to false gods, they said that they were constantly like sheep to be slaughtered. In verse 21 and or 20 and 21 they make an appeal that if they had abandoned God that God would discover it, God would reveal it. We would know God knows and so he would he would make it known. If if we had abandoned God to seek after false gods, it would be known. They, They are aware that God would see their sin and would reveal it. They are still humbly trusting in the Lord. But they say, yet for your sake, or as Jim Hamilton translates it a little more forcefully, because of you. The complaint is that they could make sense of things if they were suffering and defeated because of something they knew they did. If we had sinned, and and, and, and we see psalms like that where there is a a lament of their circumstances because of their sin. And And they acknowledge their sin. We are suffering because of our own sin. But here they are saying we are suffering unjustly. It is not because of our sin. If if we had sinned, Lord, You would show it to us. But because of You, we are facing these things. They are suffering because of God. They felt like God had abandoned them when they had not abandoned Him. They use the imagery, or the psalmist uses the imagery here of that of an innocent sheep being slaughtered for no apparent reason. So it seemed like God, as the shepherd of Israel, was not guarding his sheep. And as a result, they were being devoured by the wolves of the surrounding nations. God's people were facing apparent defeat. And they were unjustly suffering affliction and shame. Despite their present trust in God and their faithfulness to to the covenant. But look how the people of God respond in 23 through 26. They continue to demonstrate their trust and dependence on God by petitioning him for help. It's a prayer of trust and dependence. God's people realize God is their only hope. They don't turn to false gods for help. They don't come up with a better military strategy. They realize that the reason that they are defeated is because of God. And so God is the only one that can help them. So they plead with Him to awaken from His seeming slumber. And I identify so much with the exclamation point in this section of the psalm and I, and I bet that some of you do as well. if you will acknowledge, you may do it shamefully, but still acknowledge that there have been times in your frustrated prayers that you put an exclamation point on it. "Awake God! why aren't you helping me? You know and then you' kind of like, "Wait, I'm talking to God. No, no disrespect, Lord, but but I am afflicted here. If I've done something wrong, show it to me. But I feel like I'm suffering unjustly awake. Rouse yourself. Why do you hide your face? I can just sense the exclamation of the heart of God's people because I have sensed it myself. Awaken. Harkening back to verse 9, the petition in verse twenty-three is that God would not reject them forever. In in verse three, the plea of the, uh, 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 the uh, rather I should say, verse three is echoed in the plea of the people in verse twenty-four, that God's face of favor and blessing would shine upon them as it had in the past. Lord, by the light of Your face, they were delivered. But in verse 24, the plea is, Why do you hide your face? Shine your face on us once again. They petition to the Lord to return to them and to help them because they know without His help they are hopeless. This then is a prayer of trust and dependence on God, their Deliverer. But also notice... The end of verse 26. Their appeal is to God's ongoing love and kindness to His covenant people, or the steadfast love of the Lord. And that's actually covenant language. Their appeal is to the steadfast love of God. They're not making an appeal to perfection, they're not saying we have done everything just perfect or just right. But they are making an appeal to faithfulness to the covenant. We have been faithful to the covenant. Even when we have failed, we have made the appropriate sacrifices. We have done what we ought to do. So what they are acknowledging then is that they are still dependent on the steadfast love of God. The petition is, Lord, we have been faithful to the covenant. And so we are asking that you would be faithful to the covenant as well. Hold up your end of the bargain. And then I think that this petition is the right response to, un- to unjust suffering and apparent defeat. Things were not making sense for the people of God. As far as they could tell, they had been faithful to the covenant, but it seemed like God had abandoned them or rejected them. They were not being punished for their wrongdoing, but it felt that way. It certainly seemed that way. They felt like they were suffering unjustly, and they felt defeated by the enemy, and they felt abandoned by God. But what was their response? I suppose that they could have said, "This it isn't worth it, this serving the Lord and keeping the covenant isn't worth it we're going to go worship the sun God or worship one of the false gods of the surrounding nations he's that their God seems to be blessing them with abundance their God certainly seems to be blessing them with victory in battle because they have defeated us but that wasn't their response they they could have they could have pulled themselves up by their bootstraps and made a better military strategy or strengthened their military might and said, Lord, if you're not going to help us, then we're going to do it ourselves. But that was not their response again. They did not place their confidence in their own strength or in the false gods of the surrounding nations. Rather, they turned to their God as their only hope. The people of God do not abandon God because of their suffering. Instead, they cry out to Him. Isn't that right? That the, the afflictions of the people of God—they do not drive the people of God away from God. They drive the people of God closer to Him. It's like the parable of the of the. And this is uh, this is. A, a, a little off the meaning of the parable. But I think of the section of the parable where the sun and the uh, cloud are arguing over which, uh, over when they can make, force a man to remove his coat. And so the cloud in all of his fury blows as hard as he can trying to blow the coat off of the man. But instead he just wraps the coat tighter because of the cold air that is coming from the cloud. And so it is in our afflictions, when we feel the cold winter of our afflictions and our defeats, it, the people of God do not flee from God to other false gods. Rather, they cling more closely to Him. That is why this petition in the midst of their suffering is the right response. They, looked, they rightly look to the Lord and cast their hopes completely and entirely on Him. This demonstrates the right response of the people of God. But I want us to note that this psalm ends as laments often do. Not with an answer. It doesn't end with an answer. It ends rather with a hopeful anticipation of an answer. And that's how it ends. Rise up and redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. And it isn't, I will, or I have, or I am on my way. That's just where it ends, as laments often do. It ends not with an answer, but in hopeful anticipation. So then what does this psalm mean for the new covenant people of god we're not like the old covenant people of god we are not a we are not a religio political state with foreign enemies in the surrounding nations that come and fight against us with sword and bow we're not we're not fighting foreign nations with tanks and guns in the name of jesus so what 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 does what does this mean for the new covenant people of god well, we don't have to wonder too long, because Paul actually quotes verse twenty-two of this psalm in Romans eight thirty-six. And maybe you can do this when uh, when you go home or um, sometime during in, during the week. But a brief glimpse through Romans eight lets us gives us a sense of why he would quote this central passage in Psalm 44, which is verse 22. In Psalm, it's because his mind is running on a similar track. Just looking through the Psalm lets us see that this, that's many of the same themes that we find in Psalm 44 appear throughout Romans 8. And it causes the citation of Psalm 44:22 to fit appropriately in the closing section of what we understand to be the eighth chapter of Romans. But I think that those themes are not just present all throughout, but I think that they are immediately present in the immediate context of Paul's citation of Psalm 44 in Romans 8:31 through 39 and I want to read that to you now. the quotation, that's the citation of 4422 of Psalms. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God. In Christ Jesus, our Lord. So just recounting the theme of Psalm 44, we see in this passage of Scripture, past deliverance and present trust. Paul begins in verse 31 with the question, What shall we say to these things? And what are the, these things he is speaking of these things he previously mentioned, at least beginning in verse 18. He speaks of the suffering of this present time, of our groaning and pain along with all creation and our weaknesses. But at the same time, Paul speaks of the Spirit helping us in our weaknesses and God working everything for our ultimate good, Because we have been elected, justified, and glorified. So, what shall we say to these things? We say with the people of God in Psalm 44 that we have heard what deeds God performed in the days of old. That's verse 1 of Psalm 44 how he vanquished the enemy and set us free. That's verse 2 of Psalm 44. We know it was not by our own sword, but the strong arm and skilled hand of the Lord on his favored people that God has ordained salvation for us. We do not trust in our own strength, but in God whose face shines upon us. For if God is for us, who can be against us? So we see the past deliverance of the Lord. What shall we say to these things if God be for us? Who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son. God, that is the past deliverance of God on our behalf. He did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all. So then... We see that everything is working together for good. That is the, the present trust. And then based on that past deliverance that God has given us in His Son, we have this present trust. How, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Who will bring anything to our charge? This is the, the present trust of the Lord or present trust in the Lord of the people of God based on His past deliverance of us. In Christ. If God be for us. Who can be against us? We also see the plight of God's people. Their unjust suffering. And apparent defeat. Despite God's favor on his people. And his fighting for them. Despite the fact that no one can lay anything to the charge of God's elect. the The fact that God has redeemed us in his son. Does not diminish the fact that his people still endure as romans eight thirty uh, five through the rest of the chapter or rest of the uh, yeah through the rest of the chapter tell us uh, it, does, it, it we endure tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, and sword, despite God fighting our battles and vanquishing our enemies. The fact is that we, in the present day, often feel forsaken and defeated. Do we not? And, and I would say that we feel forsaken and de- defeated. How much more then, in our soft American context, if we feel forsaken and de- defeated, do people who are presently suffering persecution, that is probably just as severe as the illustration that I opened with, How how much more do they feel forsaken, abandoned, distressed... And persecuted. Forsaken and defeated. Often, like the people of God in Psalm 44. Often suffering comes to us simply for being God's people. Simply for being a Christian. Or simply being faithful to Christ. And not necessarily because of wrongdoing. Right? They hate us. Why do they hate us? Because we do terrible things? No. They, Jesus said, they're going to hate you because they hate me. And, and that is why it is a fool's errand to try to gra- gain credibility with the world. They hate Jesus. They, don't, they, they hate us because they hate Jesus. Just being faithful to Christ... Causes the hatred of the world. For the sake of God then. We are being killed all the day long. And are regarded as sheep. To be slaughtered. But I also think Paul does something important here. That we need to understand. Before we can comprehend how to interpret Psalm 44. As God's new covenant people. In Psalm 44, the people of God put themselves forward as the innocent sufferers who have been abandoned by God. However, Paul speaks of the suffering of God's new covenant people, not in the light of their innocent suffering, but in the light of the true and ultimate innocent sufferer, Christ Jesus. God proves His favor towards His people... In the same way, He vanquishes their adversaries. And that is by not sparing His own Son, but giving Him up for us all. Do you hear that? He did not spare His own Son, but He gave Him up for us. So we see Jesus as the ultimate innocent sufferer. He is bearing the punishment of God, the wrath of God. Why? He's innocent. He has committed no sin. Why is he bearing the wrath of God? The unsparing wrath of God. Well, Paul says he gave him up for us. So he is suffering on our behalf, the innocent, on behalf of the guilty. Christ, then, is the ultimate innocent sufferer. Neither the the Old Covenant people in Psalm 44 or anywhere else, nor the New Covenant people of God, can ever truly claim to be innocent. No one can make an appeal to complete covenant faithfulness. Nor can we say that we have never relied on our own strength, or that we have never turned away from God to idols. All of us have to admit that that is the case for us. We have often depended on our own strength and turned from God to idols. Only Jesus, only Jesus can make an appeal to absolute covenant faithfulness and blamelessness before God. But He is the one that wasn't spared. He is the one that bore the wrath of God. He is the one that endured the greatest suffering and seeming defeat. He is the one that felt forsaken so much so that at the cross he cries, My God, why have you forsaken me? We need only look at Isaiah 53, verse 6 through 7. And this is actually just a part of the song of the suffering servant. So it's similar to a psalm. But Isaiah 53, 6 through 7 says, All we like sheep have gone astray. And we have turned everyone to his own way. Even those innocent sufferers in Psalm 44. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed. And he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. So, do you see the imagery there? Maintaining the sheep imagery that we see in, Rome, uh, in Psalm forty-four, that we are sheep, but we are scattered sheep, and we are scattered because of our sin. But Christ is the innocent Lamb of God. He is the suffering servant in this passage of Scripture. And He is the one that suffers for our sin. And this is the reason that no charge or condemnation can be brought against the elect of God because Christ has died and is raised and is at the right hand of God making intercession for us. This means that our unjust suffering is not because of our innocence, but it's because of Christ's innocence. Remember, Jesus said they hate you because they hate me. We also, further, don't suffer for our sins. Christ has already suffered for our sins. So what are we suffering for? We are suffering for Christ. And so... Paul says, for his sake, we are killed all the day long and are are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. What Paul is aiming at is one of the main themes, if not the main theme of Romans, and that is union with Christ. Paul is showing that we are united with Christ in His suffering. But through that unbreakable union, we are also united in Christ... In His glory. Look at verses 16 and 17 of Romans chapter 8. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit. That is how we are unified, or that is the union of Christ. It is through the Spirit of God. So the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Again, this is union with Christ language, but listen to this provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. We suffer for His sake. And that is why, through suffering and seeming defeat, we exclaim with Paul in Romans 37 through 8, 37 through 39, no. In all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from what the psalmist would say, the steadfast love of God. Or here Paul says, the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. We are not abandoned. We are not forsaken. Though we suffer, it is for His sake that we are counted as sheep to the slaughter. And it is because we are suffering with Christ, in Christ, and for Christ, that we can exclaim, He will not abandon His covenant to us, that we are secure in His steadfast love. And then we see our plea, hoping in God. Here is the answer that the the psalmist is anxiously anticipating. God has answered the prayer or the lament of the the psalmist in 23 through 26. And he has answered it in Christ. God has not rejected us, but has accepted us in Christ. God's face now shines upon us, not in the glory of military victory, but His face shines upon us in the glory of the only begotten Son of God. It's not because of our covenant faithfulness, but it's because of Christ's covenant faithfulness. Sin has bowed our souls down to the dust as the psalmist laments, but God in Christ has raised us up And seated us in heavenly places with Christ. God has come to our help in Christ. And by His mercy and for His glory. He has redeemed us in and through Christ. So Christ is our plea. And hope of salvation. So when we feel like sheep regarded for slaughter. And we feel defeated and overwhelmed. Our plea is is Christ. That is the answer. Our hope is Christ. We don't turn to our own efforts. And we don't turn to the potential multitude of idols that we can turn to in our lives. But rather we turn to Christ. So are you weary from battle? Are you anxious? Are you defeated? Do you you feel attacked at every front? Do you look into the future and see that there is potential suffering for Christians on the horizon? That we thought may never come in our day. And your heart becomes anxious. And tumultuous because you're afraid. Beloved can I tell you. Turn to Christ. To whom you are bound with an unbreakable union. In both suffering and in victory. If we suffer with him. We will be glorified with him. So now let's look. At just a few points, there's probably ten, but I can't find them all, or I didn't find them all. And we don't have time for ten, even if I could find them all. So I'll just do three, right? A good, safe number. So first, in the light of our union with Christ, be aware we are instructed in the New Testament not to be surprised by afflictions. Be aware, God's people often suffer unjustly and face apparent defeat. As a matter of fact, this is as proven at the cross, this is how God gets the victory and gets the glory. Right? We we look to Jesus. That's what that's what Hebrews 12, 2 and 3 are. Getting that. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So consider Him who endured from sinners such hostility against Himself, listen, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. So considering that we suffer in Christ, is an encouragement to us. It strengthens our feebleness. And it's because we know that suffering in Christ brings victory, because that's what the cross tells us. Christ suffered, it looked like the greatest defeat that the world had ever known. But we know as Christians that it was the greatest victory that God ever accomplished. It was in Christ our head suffered unjustly and faced apparent defeat. And since we are united with Him, we should only expect to face what He endured. Hebrews 12, 11 goes on to tell us that it is through suffering unjustly that we share in holiness. And it is through suffering that God trains us for righteousness. So don't be caught off guard... By suffering. Second, be encouraged. Since we are united with Christ. Through our trust in his covenant faithfulness. On our behalf. We are united with him in his sufferings. But if we are united with him in his sufferings. We are also united with him in his victory. Even when death seems apparent. And I know I need to bring this. A plane to a crashing land. But I. we often look at... I just often think of Paul and Silas, right? They're, they are thrown in jail for, for what? For being drunkards? For being revilers or rioters? No! They are thrown in jail for preaching the gospel. And so here they are in a miserable jail cell. And I would say that... Uh, it probably isn't... I mean, I don't want to go to prison nowadays. I certainly wouldn't want to go to prison back then. This is uncomfortable an uncomfortable situation. And we see them then praying and singing and making praise to the Lord in, in the middle of the night. And we think, man, what great resolve these heroes of the faith must have. Look at these guys gritting their teeth and saying, Well, Silas... This stinks, but by golly, I'm gonna sing anyway. That's that's not that is not the testimony of the apostolic people. They counted it all joy to suffer shame for the name of Jesus. This song didn't arise from pulling themselves up by, up by their bootstraps. This song in mid, at midnight with Paul and Silas arose from a legitimate joy that was bubbling over in their hearts that came immediately from suffering for Jesus. We are encouraged by suffering because we know that if we suffer with Him, we will also be glorified with Him. It is our honor to represent Christ in one of the ways that He is most vividly recognized. And that is through the cross. It is through our union with Christ that we share in His sufferings. And through that same union that we share in His victory. Be encouraged. Nothing will separate us from His steadfast love. Not anything in all of creation. He has united us with Christ in His death and His resurrection. In His ascension. And so even His ascension speaks to that already not yet state. When we see all things consummated. And so not only are we suffering now. Counting it joy. But we are looking ahead. Realizing that we will reign with Him. So be encouraged beloved. When you feel like you are suffering unjust affliction and defeat. And finally, be steadfast. Just, just as Israel did not turn to their own strength or to false gods, so we ought to be steadfast in the faith. As, as I've already driven home or attempted to, suffering has always been the lot of God's people. You do not need to read far in church history or read much or deeply in church history to realize that God's people are understood throughout history to be suffering people. But in their suffering, they, are, they do not abandon God nor are they abandoned by God. They always turn to God because they recognize that He is, he is their only hope. And so we recognize with the saints of all ages that we can turn to God because He is our only hope and salvation. Even when we feel like that God has abandoned us and we are being devoured by wolves, we can rest assured that He will save us for the sake of His steadfast love and that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Thank you, gracious God, for your kindness to us in Christ. Lord, there are times when we question whether or not you are kind to us. But when those, when those questions arise in our heart, Lord, we only need to look to the cross and see your ultimate kindness to us in pouring out your wrath that is due to us on your Son, Jesus and so in His suffering, Lord, we are united and we are encouraged because we know that as we suffer with Him for His sake, that we will also reign with Him. Quicken that to our hearts, Lord, when we feel persecuted and abandoned. Lord, even this week, Lord, in the, in the, uh, in the small ways, Lord, that we face hardship and affliction and, and we feel like we don't deserve it, remind us, Lord, of the kindness to us that you have shown in Christ. Your face shines upon us and nothing can separate us from your love. And I pray it, Lord, in your holy